Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to osirispod.com. Check out all the podcasts they have to offer. That is osirispod.com. In this episode, I present an interview with Catherine Stewart, an investigative reporter and author who has covered religious liberty, politics, policy, and education for over a decade. Her latest book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, which is the focus of this episode, is a rare look inside the machinery of the movement that brought Donald Trump to power. Catherine's journalism has appeared in the New York Times op-ed, NBC, The New Republic, and the New York Review of Books, just to name a few. For too long, the religious right has masqueraded as a social movement preoccupied with a number of cultural issues, such as abortion and same-sex marriage. But in her deeply reported investigation that is the power worshippers, Catherine reveals a disturbing truth. America's religious right has evolved into a Christian nationalist movement, one that seeks to gain political power and to impose its vision on all of society. It isn't fighting a culture war, it is waging a political war on the norms and institutions of American democracy. Catherine shows that the real power of the movement lies in a dense network of think tanks, advocacy groups, and pastoral organizations embedded in a rapidly expanding community of international alliances with like-minded, anti-democratic religious nationalists around the world, including Russia. She follows the money behind the movement and traces much of it to a group of super-wealthy, ultra-conservative donors and family foundations. The Christian nationalist movement is far more organized and better funded than most people realize. It seeks to control all aspects of government and society. Its successes have been stunning and its influence now extends to every aspect of American life, from the White House to state capitals, from our schools to our hospitals. The Power Worshippers is a brilliantly reported book of warning and a wake-up call. Catherine's probing examination demands that Christian nationalism be taken seriously as a significant threat to the American Republic and our democratic freedoms. In this episode, Catherine and I discuss the distressing vision the Christian nationalist movement has for America while considering the very real and important rights at stake. We talk about the lies about the history of the United States the movement are employing to further their cause, mostly from a man named David Barton. We discuss how the Christian nationalist movement is going global, how Christian nationalists are intent on stacking the courts throughout the country, and so much more. I want to say a quick thank you to Jeff Stanfill for putting me on to Catherine's extremely important book, a book I'd like to add that just won the first place prize for nonfiction books from the Religion News Association. The Power Worshippers truly lays bare one of the, if not the, largest current threat to democracy in America. Grab a copy. You will learn so much, as you will, in this interview with Catherine Stewart. Podcast.
But for real, the book, um, the book really is, it's awesome. I'm, I, it, it's kind of mind blowing and it's disturbing, but important. It's, it's really, really special. So I'm glad to talk about it, spread the word. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for reading it. I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it was recommended to me by my, um, my daughter's uh, uh, singing coach. And he's just like, you know, he knows kind of where I stand politically. And he's like, this is going to blow your mind. And I didn't know how much it was going to blow my mind. I think a lot of people, and we'll get into it, don't really understand the level of success they're having, the level of organization going on. So it's it's important important read in that way. That's so. the thing. People don't understand the level of organization. And I think that that's the thing that, you know, I was doing, giving a talk yesterday with a a bunch of pastors, uh, Lutheran pastors in South Carolina, which was really great. I do a lot of, believe it or not, pastor talks. Oh, wow. And they said, what's the thing that surprised you the most? And it was, frankly, you know, when I started in on this topic, it was the level of organization that I think uh, I underestimated. And I think a lot of people continue to underestimate. Yeah. I think that's a fun place to start because you, I mean, you got to see this level of organization really hands-on. I was kind of... um. Uh, blown away by kind of the level of infiltration that was going on as as throughout the book where, you know, uh, it, given anecdotes about events and meetings you attended all over the country. Can you talk a little bit about that, like, level of research and the places you went and the places and the people you uh, met along your journey? Sure. Well, you know, I've been researching this movement, uh, religious nationalism, since 2009 when a good news club came to my daughter's public elementary school. And that sort of set me down this path. I sort of questioned, you know, at first I thought, you know, they, they were going to promote, by the, uh, they promised to teach Bible study from a non-denominational standpoint. I was frankly very naive. I thought non-denominational meant non-sectarian. And look, I believe people can teach about the Bible in public schools if it's truly from a non-sectarian standpoint, you know, as literature yeah. or as history is, you know, a very important part of our civilization. But um, as I learned more about the Good News Club and their positions, uh, what they represented, and above all, the legal strategy that had allowed them to be in public elementary schools in the first place, we're talking little kids here, you know, yep. kids who are too young to read in many instances, I was really astonished. And I started to think, well, if they think they have a right to come to my kids' public school, and just sort of force their way in, which is what they were doing or mm -hmm. trying to do. Um, I, I have a right to go to their national convention. Let me see uh, what they're all about. Yep. So I uh, went to Alabama. You know, I always register under my own name. You know, I don't misrepresent myself at all. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to their national convention. And what I found blew my mind. Um, I was expecting, you know, people who were, you know, evangelical and, you know, certainly sectarian, but I didn't understand the level of extremism that I encountered. Um, I heard uh, one lady gave a, a seminar on how to reach um, uh, Hispanic children uh, and uh, or children of Hispanic backgrounds and Latino backgrounds. And she was saying they say they're Christian because they're Catholic. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. She said, they think they're Christian because they're Catholic. And basically her whole thing was, we need to show them that they're actually going to go to hell because they're not in the right kind of religion. And there was a man there who said, you know, I had a, a little boy in the class whose who's, um, brother died. And I had to tell him that his 
little brother was his brother who died wasn't in heaven he was in hell i was just kind of astonished by this um cruelty there wow yeah so they represented anyone who doesn't conform to their Mm. version of religion with uh contempt uh there it's like incredibly you know binary you're with us you're not it was very political Mm. i saw a lot of like this is the obama era i saw a ton of anti-obama signage um some stuff that was frankly uh racist and i saw which i won't repeat here and i saw um uh the matt staver who Mm. was one of the keynote speakers he's the head of liberty council and he expressed so much hostility to public education in the first place he said knock down all doors all barriers to all 65,000 public schools in the country and take the gospel to this open mission field now, not later now. He talked about, you know, we're on the mat and, you know, I like to fight. And I thought, okay, these people are putting their programs in public schools, elementary schools, Mm -hmm. where kids can't make a distinction between what's taught in their school and what's endorsed by their school. They're getting a huge subsidy from the public schools uh, by putting their clubs in these. And, And yet they have this incredible hostility to public education. And that was the first time I realized that this is a movement that doesn't just want to have their voices heard in the noisy forum of American democracy. You know, for a long time, the religious right would say, and I think sometimes many of them truly believed, we just want to see to the table. It's big democracy. We have a right to have our voices heard. We have a right to free speech like everyone else. But when I was able to grasp the hostility to public education is when I realized this is a movement that doesn't believe in democracy or the principles of equality and pluralism that represent the best of the American promise. They treat our institutions with contempt, including but not limited to public education. They, If they can't remake the public schools the way they want them to be, to turn them into ultra-conservative Uh, Christian academies, they want to just, you know, tear it all down. And, you know, that hostility goes back a a long way. There's plenty of, you know, you see the seeds of it in an earlier era. I mean, Jerry Falwell said in 1979, I hope to see the day when there were no public schools, Christians will have taken them over, taken, taken over them and churches will be running them. But um, I realized that you really can't know what's happening. You really can't understand this movement unless you're in the room with people who are talking with one another. And this goes back to your question. When they're talking with one another, they'll say things in in a way that's frankly more honest. Mm. So I started going to right-wing conferences. I started going to values voters summits, road to majority conferences, other types of strategy gatherings in doing research for my uh, first book in this area, The Good News Club, which came out in 2012 and was mm-hmm. focused on public education. I went to churches that were very getting very involved in their school boards and very involved in politics. I went to um, uh, all kinds of gatherings. I uh, went to gatherings of um, uh, Pentecostal and neo-charismatic organizations, um, uh, often their uh Part some are part of a movement called the New Apostolic Reformation. Others are not, um, and they are like an extremely politicized, uh, very fast-growing movement. Uh, and I really kind of came away with this understanding 
of the movement's organization. Um, it's frankly, it's it's roots in some parts of our history, but more than that, it's strategy. Um, you know, the movement is, I would say, you know, the, there's been over five decades of investment in this movement, and it's not just leadership driven, but it's also organization driven. And um, so I went to, you know, you can, there are all these different organizations you can group into categories. So there's like the legal advocacy organizations, the networking organizations like the Council for National Policy. Um, you have um, uh, policy groups like Family Research Council, American Family so uh, Association, Heritage and Activist Arm Heritage Action. You have data networks, uh, religious networks. And so I've been to uh, a lot of different gatherings in each of these categories, and it's been very informative in, um, you know, in, in, in my understanding of this movement. Absolutely. Entirely eye-opening, and as you lay it out in your book. So by doing that, you get a good vision of, um, of the future that they want, um, which was you know, described early. I'm talking about what Christian nationalists want for this country, and you described early in, in the book as a future most Americans would find abhorrent. What is it, what is it they do want? Um, I think that's a good kind of foundational thing to, to understand. You know, it's really interesting when we're looking at the movement, I think there are three different groups we've got to keep in mind. There's the leaders of the movement, you know, leaders of a lot of the policy groups. Mm -hmm. There are the funders of the movement, which I think is a very underappreciated part of the movement, the people who are providing the money that keep it all going. And then there's the rank and file. Okay, the people who are, you know, sometimes voting to end abortion or protect the traditional family or things like that. So when you're talking about the rank and file, and not all the, these groups don't all want the same things. When you're talking about the rank and file, you're talking about a very large and diverse group of people with a lot of different interests and concerns. And so for a lot of them, when they're, you know, casting the vote to end abortion, say, or protect, protect, protect the traditional family, they're not really arguing for major changes in the way our government is run. They're really mm -hmm. making a statement about their identity and what they value in themselves, right? Mm. For the leaders, they want power. They want access to public money and access to private money. They want those funders to keep giving them money. Um, they want policies that privilege their religious and political viewpoints, sort of approved religious and political viewpoints. Um, uh, so, but you know, access to power and and money is is very potent. Yeah. <laughs> it <can> be underestimated, <laughs> and for the funders. But here's the interesting thing: a lot of the funders, I think, you know, I name a lot of them in my book. Yep. Um, the Wilkes brothers, the Green family, the DeVos Prince family, Juggernaut, um, Tim Dunn. There are so many others um, that we discuss. Skyf, the Bradley Foundation. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are as committed, if not more committed, to far-right economic policies as they are to right-wing positions yeah. in the so-called culture wars. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is using these culture war issues as little shiny baubles, get the rank and file to vote on identity. Yep. They'll be voting in politicians who will bring in far-right economic policies that are going to in increase our fortunes. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the, the you know, I think a lot of people focus on on these culture wars, but I mean, I think I think you kind of get into it later in the book, but I, I think it's important to bring up right now, kind of what is at stake here. Um, the rights at stake here are very real and intense, well beyond 
you know, buying cakes and flowers, as you mentioned. Um, and, and I know you have a personal story. We don't have to get into that. It, readers can definitely get in that. It's, it's unreal what you had to go through and what many people have to go through in this country because of, you know, uh, um, Catholic hospitals and, and, and some of these Christian nationalist idealists, um, ideas, ideas. But, uh, what, 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 I think it'd be fun to hear you talk about what is actually at stake. Cause it's, it's, like I said, it's super intense. I think democracy itself is at stake. I mean, look, what the fact that the Republican, first of all, the Republican Party has unfortunately been captured by this movement. It's been captured yep. by extremists. Yep. Um, and I think the fact that uh, Trump continues to be the overwhelming front runner, the man who faces 91 counts across four criminal cases. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about, you know, the uh, the crimes of somebody like Richard Nixon, you know, this is sort of what. Trump does in you know before twelve o'clock noon, but back then both Republicans and Democrats united and said, "Okay, you've crossed a line, you're out." And yet Trump has crossed so many lines, and what this shows us is that the movement and the movement totally stands behind him. They oh, turn out votes for him. Mm-hmm. They don't criticize him. They say things like you know they compare him to a biblical ruler like King Cyrus you know, an imperfect ruler through whom God chose to enact his will. They say he was chosen by God. And what this shows us is that they have no respect for democracy, no respect for the rule of law, no respect for institutions of value that have served us over time. This is not a remotely conservative movement. They poo-poo his coup attempt. They, um, you know, excuse everything he does. And, And I think that what's you know, what's at stake? We can just start, you know, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, mm-hmm. um, freedom uh, of religion. True religious freedom is absolutely at stake. Um, freedom from fear is at stake. Yep. And I think that, you know, there are plenty of examples of autocratic rule all over the world. I mean, this sort of religious nationalism that Trump engages in when he has his rallies and he's a preacher to his right as a warm-up act and a preacher has, to his left, he's he's bubble-wrapping himself in sanctimony. He's saying, you can't touch me because I've got the holy men on my side. And this is what religious nationalist leaders do when they want to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power. And they do it to exempt themselves from any democratic investigation of their, any real investigation of, of their corruption, mm-hmm. their nepotism, uh, the, the harms they may be perpetrating against their own people. Uh, yeah. And they do it to consolidate their power and wealth. And that's exactly the way Trump is going to behave. Um, so I think that uh, there's a lot at stake in this coming election. I do think that it's, a, you know, it's a challenging word to use, but, you know, it's the F, the other F word, fascism. But I do think that yeah. uh, that fascism is on the ballot in 2024. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you just lay it out kind of simply, dignity, health, job, and life in many, many cases. Um, mm-hmm. You did mention earlier how this is you know, a movement that's been building for a while. And many believe that Christian nationalism was born in 1973. That's when the Supreme Court made abortion a constitutional right. But that's described as a myth in your book, or even worse than a myth. Can you talk a little bit about the authentic origins and how kind of this movement kind of began? I think there have been sort of um, reactions against um, sort of reactionary 
movements since the colonial era, certainly. Mm. I mean, you know, again, like a really big, diverse country. And, um, you know, people are all over the place in terms of their politics, their dispositions and what they want. Um, but you can see a kind of expression uh, and of this reactionary um, impulse in the in in the era of slavery. You mm -hmm. had these pro-slavery theologians like Robert Louis Dabney and James Henley Thornwell calling abolitionists, uh, including abolitionist pastors, atheistic, amoral, communistic, uh, and, and the like, and um, and saying that this was. I don't have the quotes in front of me, mm -hmm. but um, James Henley Thornwell, uh, leader in the Southern uh, Presbyterian Church, said. Um, the parties in this, let me just see if I have this, it's quite rude to do, like just grab my book, I've got to find do it. Do it, do it, absolutely. It's a, it's a good one. Okay, yeah. he said the parties in this conflict, who's, so there was on the one side, the pro-slavery theologians like mm -hmm. Thornwell, Henley and, and so many others, and they were the ones who had a lot of money, by the way. And then yeah. you had sort of ragtag group of abolitionist theologians who really uh, believed that slavery was an abomination. So Thornwell says the parties in this conflict are not merely abolitionists and slaveholders. They're atheists, socialists, communists, and red Republicans, Jacobins on the one side, and the friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. Who do you think he's putting on the side of order and regulated freedom? That's the slaveholders. I mean, it's kind of astonishing. And and yeah. you sort of like atheist, socialist, communist. I mean, that's what anyone who is sort of to the right of these extremists mm. is called. They think we're all sort of, you know, leading these Maoist insurgencies when we're, you know, arguing for the right to vote and these, <laughs> the integrity of public education. Um, or or the interpretation of the gospel that has more to do with loving your neighbor and caring for the least of these than this uh, you know dom domination and conquest. So there's you know there there is this been this kind of tension for a really long time, and the ideas of people like Thornwell uh, carried through to uh, you know uh, I would say uh, you know the the uh, later era when uh, a theologian named Rusas Rushduni, who is kind of a, in many ways, a, a godfather of today's Christian nationalism. It was wild learning about him. That's uh, That whole chapter on him was absolutely mind-blowing, what he was saying about slavery, what was his interpretation of the Bible about slavery. That was blowing my mind. I mean, he didn't just, you know, um, admire Dabney. He actually reprinted some of his books. Mm -hmm. It was really astonishing. And then guess who cites uh, Rush Duny is David Barton, who so Rush Duny had this whole um, disquisition on slavery, and mm -hmm. um, and 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 Barton cites it when he talks about what's the Bible's view of slavery. Now, yeah. I think a lot of you know religious nationalist leaders today are too clever to openly endorse slavery, but they yeah. do endorse sort of this idea of an order ordained by God. Uh, certainly uh, that affects women. And then they, you know, they have no problem with what they call complementarianism, which really mm. is, the, you know, lucky Adam, unlucky Eve. <laughs> she's there to sort of be a helpmeet and he's there to sort of be the dominant figure in their families. And she's to submit graciously with a smile on her face. And then, um, but they also talk about, you know, 
um, you know, the sort of it's 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 us versus them. You know, you're an insider or you're an outsider, and our 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 understanding of the Bible is what should rule. Absolutely. So Rajdani is kind of um, he's describing the book as being the source of the core ideas of the new Christian right. But you just kind of led me. You mentioned David Barton, and I think I actually wasn't aware. And um, you know, he's kind of he's 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 out there teaching um, these new ideas about. Uh, you know, what the founding fathers believed. He's actually reshaping how they look at the country. And, the, the, you know, he's teaching Newt Gingrich, Mike Pence, all these different far-right leaders about what this country, is, you know, the idea of a golden age with a country under one God. Can you talk about, I think David Barton is such an important figure to learn more about. Can you tell us a little bit about what he's teaching leaders like Newt and uh, Mike Pence? It's it's really intense. I know. You know, I think a lot of people outside the movement don't appreciate the extent to which many Christian nationalists live in an insulated world yeah. where up is down, really, not just in current events, but also an in interpretation of American history. And David Barton is the movement's, I would say, most valued uh, pseudo-historian. <laughs> He's yep. a political propagandist who poses as a historian to spread the distortions of Christian nationalist history and the idea that America's purpose is to have a sort of Christian dominion, Christian dominionist uh, 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 government. So does he, for, does, real quick, does he believe these ideas or, or is this is like this is he's making up these ideas to kind of use them to control power and push it towards a more Christian nation. Does he buy into it? You know, we can't know what's in people's hearts. Absolutely. You know, yeah. it's um, just to me. but I think for some people, they, they see what the kind of work that they do is very much in their interests. And those yeah, two things exactly. can be very true. Like when there's a lot of money and power involved in, you know, becoming this really important figure in this movement, you're you're going to start believe, maybe believing your own lies. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But for over three decades, he's peddled this falsification of America's founding. He said that America's founders were all these Bible thumping Christians intent on building a nation that would pound the Bible truth into every, you know, every person in his revisionist claims have been repeatedly debunked. Like he had published a book with Thomas Nelson, publishing, which was a Christian publishing house. And the book was called The Jefferson Lies. And they withdrew it. They actually withdrew it because they said it lacked, I don't remember the language that they used, but in fact, they said, you know, it's 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 Jefferson Lies, turns out it's full of lies. <laughs> but, his, you know, even though his revisionist claims have been debunked, mm -hmm. it doesn't diminish his popularity yep. among movement leaders, among the political leaders that they support. And, um, you know, I think about a, somebody like Mike Johnson, the new House Speaker. He has yeah. said that David Barton had a, quote, profound influence on my life and work and everything that I do. And, Super obvious. you know, I mean, the, yeah. the thing about Barton and, and people like him is that they really want to disparage the constitutional principle of church-state separation. And they do this by misreading our founders. So, um yeah. That's, it's really yeah, it's the quote that really got me. I was in your book that by Barton is history is just a political battlefield. That really, that's 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 pretty intense. And also, uh, the fact that his books, um, as you noted, are at the Air Force Library, West Point Library. It's just it, it, his teachings are. It just seemed like they were spreading throughout 
you know, so many leaders in the country in a major way. And that's terrifying to me. I mean, and it's almost it was almost comical to learn about the Museum of the Bible in that same chapter where you're learning about Barton. But that's also terrifying. And there's just this new revisionist history of 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 America as this as this Christian country when that was obviously what is not the case it's just it's his 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 book was voted the least credible book in history or something like that (laughs) by the history news and readers of the history news network were all history i mean there you know this is a movement that is but oh here's really interesting so i was just at the moms for liberty conference in philadelphia a few months ago um Mm -hmm. and david david barton's son tim who is sort of carrying on his father's legacy was there speaking to the Moms for Liberty, this is a supposedly non-political gathering, a supposedly bipartisan gathering. You know, they say, we're just moms. We're really just concerned about our kids' education. There's some bad books in there. And, you know, they're trying to change our children's gender against our will, whatever. Uh, You know, they have all the stuff that they're in a panic about. And there's Tim Barton doing his father proud by spouting in, like his father does, and sort of it's like rapid fire, like all of these sort of pseudo facts, one after the other. And it's there to overwhelm people. And uh, so they think, oh, my gosh, like this guy must be so smart because he's got so much stuff in his head. But mm-hmm. if you really know anything about history, it's a complete misinterpretation um, and uh, and misreading of, of, of the historical record. It's totally scary. What else is scary is just the how how it's not just spreading in our country and how it's going global a chapter was spent on a man named ralph uh drollinger who was who has had um what's described the most success of playing the inside ga- inside game i found this chapter kind of crucial as um his christian ministry was making progress and influencing leaders um just around the entire world really i think it'd be interesting to hear maybe about his work or maybe just how this movement is growing throughout the entire world. There is definitely an effort to spread an anti-democratic reaction around the world. If you look at organizations like the World uh, World Congress of Families um, or the International Organization of the Family, these are organizations that gather like-minded people for get together, very reactionary people. Uh, National conservatism does a little bit of the same thing, but they're more representative of the new right than the Christian right. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, sh- do presentations. I went to a, a World Congress of Families gathering of uh, in Verona, Italy, in the last chapter of Power mm-hmm. Worshippers. Yep. And basically, you know, a lot of it is funded by not just Americans, but also Russians. Listen, the radical right, I mean, this is something that I would not have predicted. They are really finding an affinity with Russia. They, uh, Trump, uh, sorry, Putin. <laughs> Why mm-hmm. did I confuse that? <laughs> I get uh, it. <laughs> Putin is, um, you know, embracing a kind of white uh, Christian nationalism himself in a way. He's, he's you know, occasionally I watch like Russian TV through state TV, through a translator. And I remember it was in the start of the war against Ukraine. And there was a a speaker who was saying, those Ukrainians, they are devils, they are demonic, they are atheistic, they're something, how can you be demonic, sorry, demonic and atheistic at the same time? No matter, he said they're atheistic, they're demonic, they're godless, 
they're satanic. And you good Russian soldiers, you need to wipe them out. It was like the language of rhetoric of genocide. And it's just very, this is like the dehumanization of the other. And frankly, we saw that just a couple of days ago with Trump, where he refers to his political enemies as vermin. Vermin, yeah, absolutely. Dehumanizing people uh, in this way, referring them to them as unsavory animals or demons um, is a way of, you know, taking away their humanity. And that kind of thing often proceeds in authoritarian reaction. Absolutely. It was wild to learn that they are spending um, like 50 million uh, overseas just last year and how they're targeting, they got, they target the kids, the age range is kind of the four to 14 movement. Um, they understand that's when the people find religion or influence. That's, it's all really scary to see, you know, I've learned more and more about Steve Bannon and just how much work he's doing overseas. And that's in your book as well. Um, but we do got to talk about the courts here in America. Um, it, it's crucial because many Christian nationalists know they've lost the culture wars in regard to gay rights and abortion. So many want to fight for their goals um, by stacking all the courts, um, you know, from local all the way up. How um how are they going about this? And I think, uh, um, you know, a, a man by the name of uh, Leonard Leo uh, might come up in your answer because he's heavily involved. Was, I love how specific you are in letting us know all these people sp- specifically behind all these movements and ideas. It's wild. It's cool. Yeah, thanks. I mean, yeah. uh, the mo- you're right. They A lot of their uh, policies are unpopular with large majorities of Americans and even some of them with majorities of Republicans. Mm. And they know that if you get the courts, you can get the country. So over time, they have invested enormous amounts of money. And we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in taking the courts. And the so there's all these different organizations in the legal sphere, sort of like a far right uh, legal uh, ecosphere. There's mm-hmm. organizations like the Federalist Society, which Leo headed up, which plays a role in grooming and promoting candidates, far-right candidates for the courts. There are groups like Judicial Watch, which also play a role in this. There's um, organiza- There are a lot of legal advocacy groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom or First Liberty or Liberty Council, or the Pacific Justice Institute. Uh, there are many others that are involved in litigating uh, for the rights of people with the supposedly correct viewpoints to impose their views on other people. Mm-hmm. And here's the interesting thing. So they're very careful and extremely strategic. So for instance, that the Good News Club uh, court decision, it was a 2001 Supreme Court decision that allowed good news clubs to be put in public schools in the first place. That was a pro, uh, the culmination of a 15-year legal strategy mm-hmm. where they carefully find the right plaintiffs, very, you know, s- sympathetic plaintiffs. Mm-hmm. They not all not all conservative Christian, by the way, some of them representing different religions, but they do this in order to offer a kind of appearance of religious uh, impartiality. They bring the right cases to the right courts to put into place these novel legal building blocks that build up to a big win. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, if we need to, it's like a ladder. It's like the lo- the logic that they need to get their big win is a ladder. So we'll 
put this piece in place first with this case. And once we got that case, we can put the next piece in place, drawing on that precedent. And then they, they build up to a big win. So um, it, you can't sort of, the amounts of money that go through that uh, legal sphere are enormous. And um, there are a lot of very, uh, very empowered individuals involved. Um, and it, it's very consequential. I mean, if you get the courts, you can get the country. Absolutely. It was, and it's it's just scary, the headway they were making, especially during Trump's presidency, which is a lot, you know, the cause for alarm for against a, another Trump presidency, because it's, mm-hmm. it's it, and he sets himself up uh, in a major way through having those courts. Um, it's incredibly important to note that Christian national, nationalism is no longer ethnically mon, uh, monogamous. Um, you know, you talk a lot. Uh, there's a the chapter really focused on it, how uh, Latino preachers are targeted. Can you talk about that change and how that aff- may affect the movement? Absolutely. Look, this movement uh, can see, the leaders can see the future uh, demographically as clearly as you or I can. They know that their movement can't continue to succeed if they remain all white. So they've devoted enormous resources into cultivating conservative leaders, uh, I'm sorry, community organizers and pastors of color and in order to diversify their movement. And so like between 2016 and 2020, Trump gained eight to 10 points in his favor among Latino voters overall. That's an extraordinary change in just 10 years. I mean, sorry, in just four years, like an eight to 10 point flip. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is a consequence of that type of organizing. I credit somebody like Ralph Reed, who's the head of the Faith and Freedom Coalition and puts together a Road to Majority conference every year. I think he's one of the very far-seeing individuals on the religious right. He's like a very sort of uh, far-seeing strategist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you go to his conference, his uh, Road to Majority conference, and I don't know, maybe the audience is 30 35, 30 to 35% um, people of color. Uh, and uh, a lot of people of color represented on the stage. They have seven mountains breakout sessions, which is uh, seven mountains uh, is um, is a kind of uh, dominionist theory, this idea that, you know, pe- the right kind of Christians should dominate the seven key mountains or molders of culture, which include um, government, education, arts, um, you know, things like that, the sort of key features of culture. And that type of seven mountains dominionism is often sort of a part of these charismatic, like neo-charismatic or right-wing Pentecostal churches, which draw in communities of color. So they, you see a lot of folks like that featured very prominently. You know, I met uh, a number of people in, at that conference who were like, oh yeah, um, you know, they they brought us all here. You know, they brought our whole church here. You know, like they're clearly trying to bring people in with, you know, free trips and oh, they're treating us so generously, like that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, they know very well that, you know, if you can get, if you can swing a district, mm-hmm. like get a swing district in a swing state, you can get the entire state. So, like, if you look at the statistics on Florida, mm-hmm. they're figuring out, like, what are the key churches we need to target in order 
to swing this state. And they're going after those pastors. And Trump, uh, for example, has done a lot of events in sort of, I would say, majority uh, Latino uh, Pentecostal and charismatic churches in in Florida in those areas. Yeah, I mean, some recent uh, polling, I don't know what to believe fully with the polling, but some of the recent polling we all saw about the swing states might uh, allude to the fact that some of this this is working, which was which is you know disheartening to, to me. Um, something that was bothering me a whole bunch, and it just kind of came up here and there throughout the book. I talked to a lot of climate scientists and activists um, on this on this podcast, and just it's you know in the environment something that I really care about. There's a lot of attacks on environmentalist um, mm -hmm. and environmentalism um, that Christian nationalists make. They, you know, described in some cases as a false religion. How do um, the Christianist nationalist movement view environmentalism, and you know, what's what's their angst there? Some referred to environmentalism as a green dragon. I mean, it's <laughs> like you know, it's very it's a movement that uh, tends to be very hostile to climate science and uh -huh. also, frankly hostile to the development of renewable energy, which is sad because renewable energy could actually be a huge economic driver, especially in the red states. Um, but part of that has to do with the fact that the movement does derive a lot of its funding from uh, interests that have, or individuals or, or mm. foundations that have fossil fuel interests. And I also think that some of it has to do with this sort of dominionist idea that people are put on this earth to have dominion over all the earth and all the animals. The animals are there for, you know, for us to eat. The um, earth is there for us to exploit and get rich. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is where the funders come in. Mm -hmm. And and so they are, are very, you know, and then, of course, there's a whole creationism thing, some yeah. Uh, folks in the movement, I, I don't think they're all creationists. I'm sorry. I just think that, you know, even some who try and uh, try and skirt around that issue really don't believe the earth was created 6,000 years ago, but, yeah. Um, yeah. but some do. Yeah. And, uh, and they don't want to make that a fault line in their movement. So they'll sort of skirt around that, but that kind of creationism and the idea of, um, you know, all of that uh, just is, is very contra, you know, climate science is very contradictory to them. Any kind of earth science, frankly, is contradictory yeah, in that plus, way. Plus in that way. That you mentioned, absolutely. absolutely. They, um, I mean, Dabney yeah. was against, he called it something like the atheistic sciences of, of geology or something. He, Dabney, you know, the sort of pro-slavery theologian, uh -huh. he was also very hostile to the study of geology because he felt like it contradicted what, uh, what, what he thought the Bible said. Yeah, it's a, it's a rationale throughout the whole th throughout your whole book, um, and just learning kind of how they use scripture and how they use the Bible uh, for their own means and for their own uh, you know desires is just so disheartening. So, your book is um, it's 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 so important, but it's uh, you know it's scary throughout, and it's 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 you know learning about this level of organization, learning what they're capable of, learning learning the progress they're making. It's super. It's 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 just it's it almost had me, you know, uh, I was just, it's, it's, you know, anxiety building type thing, but you so that's why it was important that to have your epilogue that you had at the end. And in it, you talk about how the rise of the religious right should be cause, cause for alarm uh, among all who care about the future of democracy in America, yet it should not be a cause for despair. 
Absolutely uh, not. Yeah, and, wow. and, and I love. Why, why is that? Why do you say that? Well, this is a big, really interesting country. It's very dynamic, yep. and uh, things can change a lot. If you look at history, things shift around all the time. I mean, there's no guarantees. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't happen without effort. But you know, I think about the challenges that people have uh, faced in the past, much worse challenges than we're facing now. And mm-hmm. I just think, you know. I don't know about you, but when I was young, I used to like go to nightclubs. Do you remember you'd have like your plus one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, this is my plus one, you know? And uh, and I used to think we just need a plus one program where everybody just brings one person along and just, first of all, commits to, to doing more than they did the last time. Don't just vote. Bring your circle out to vote. Babysit for that lady down the street so she can get to vote. Drive the other person who's, you know, sort of housebound, that older person. Drive them to the yeah. polls so they can vote. Also, you know, get your um, there are things we can do as individuals and things we can only do when we join together. You know, yep. find friends find that plus one and 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 hold them accountable or find your group of people or find an organization that's working on say defending voting rights or defending civil rights or um you know these sort of democracy building organizations and and finally we can't forget that all politics is local this is what movements like the tea party or moms for liberty this is what they're all about they're all about getting people um engage in local activism. Well, look what happened in the last election. 80% of Moms for Liberty candidates lost their seats because most Americans, I think Christian and non-Christian alike, uh, Republican, look, most Americans are operating within that 40 to 50 yard line, right? In that sort of reasonable period in the center. They might be a little to the right or a little to the left, but most people have this sort of, um, you know, are reasonable and want to a functioning society. They want healthy uh, children. They want good schools for their kids. They want their health care. They want living wages. Um, and and they, they want justice. And they frankly don't really want to harm their neighbors. So I think that a lot of people are seeing through this agenda. Um, you know, for a long time, they said, all we need is 10% of the country to, you know, to take control. Well, not if like more than 10%, is like, no, no, you can't do that. You can't take over our schools and you can't destroy our democracy. You can't destroy our voting rights. You can't destroy our health care. So um, I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of cause for encouragement. We just need to, you know, d- don't sit back. Don't don't think that you can do nothing and just let, let and things will just shift naturally. You, you've got to stay engaged. And I, I would say, the hope is really in the struggle itself. And when you get engaged uh, and you engage in our democracy in meaningful ways, you know, not just symbolic ways, don't just tweet about it, like just get engaged in meaningful ways, um, you know, in the in, in the in the infrastructure of our democracy, you know, the local governance um, and all the other sort of areas I mentioned earlier, then yeah. you connect with a lot of wonderful people and there's a lot of hope there as well. Well, well said. I mean, it's clear from the power worshippers that they are mobilizing, they are organized, they are engaged, and you know that we're we're gonna have to learn from that and and combat, you know, come with it on our end as well. Um, it's thank you for taking the time to talk about this and for writing this book. It's it's, it's I think we're really looking at one of the biggest threats to democracy um, that that you know many of us will experience in our lifetime, hopefully, and it just it's important to know about. 
it's important to learn the level of success they're having and organizing they're having. I just think it's a crucial book. I'm glad to talk about it. So thank you for the time. I appreciate you coming on the program and uh, uh, teaching us about what's going on here. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to speak with you. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.